Sutta, Breathing Sutra of the Buddha. How many people were here for the first talk? Again, a <clears throat> Cambodian monk who's uh, become a friend and who knows uh, how much we use the full awareness of breathing teaching at this center suggested that we change the name of the center and he had a rather long poly name for it which I won't mention but it, what it was in English would be that place where people come to get happy by breathing in and breathing out <laughs> Wat means place, and those of you who know how Thai temples, whenever you see Wat, it just means that place where something or other happens. So. Um, what? It's fine with me, it already is, sure. The name's a little too long and forbidding. Okay, how to reconcile one half of you have heard um, roughly the first half and the other half of you who haven't and perhaps are totally new to this sutra. Um, clearly in the amount of time that we have, it won't be a comprehensive uh, treatment uh, of this teaching which has 16 contemplations in addition to other things at the end of it. So what I'll do is um, move through what we've already covered in much more brief and in a slightly different way and pull out essentially one of the 16 contemplations and uh, bringing in all of them in a more concrete way, but you'll see why that one is, is picked out. The Sutra on the Full Awareness of Breathing is one of the two key meditation teachings of the Buddha. In the West, it's mainly known as a way of developing calm and samadhi, which is uh, roughly a little bit more than half of the Sutra. Uh, It's very rarely understood that it's a total wisdom teaching as well. That is, the breath is generally used to calm down, calm and steady the mind. And this is familiar. You'll hear teachers say, well, let's do some anapanasati now. And that means let's follow the in-breath or the out-breath. And then they'll say, let's say, well, sometimes people, retreats will use that for three days. And then on the fourth day, assuming that many people have calmed down a bit, we'll say, okay, now let's switch to vipassana. And then the breath isn't used. But the sutra itself is a complete teaching. It goes right from the beginning, uh, assuming a mind that is wild and untrained, and it's a systematic way of gradually bringing that mind into a coherent, calm, and steady and stable state, and then using that stability, and I'll suggest tonight that the first 12 of the 16 
in a certain way, the main emphasis is really that. It is a way of calming the breath, becoming familiar with the breath, uh, beginning to catch a glimpse of the mind, beginning to catch a glimpse of the way of the body and feelings, beginning to catch a glimpse of the basic teachings of the Buddha, especially impermanence and all that comes out of impermanence. But it isn't until the 13th contemplation of the 16 that suddenly it becomes a totally wisdom teaching. And so we're going to dwell on the 13th and uh, I'll make a few suggestions as to how you can use it. Uh, My goal tonight is not so much a comprehensive treatment. It's not only the, the amount of time that we have, but but rather um, to give you a sense that there's really a, a rich source of inspiration and practical approaches for, to use from this sutra that some of you may actually want to include in your own practice or uh, perhaps look into this sutra in more depth and make use of it. It can be taken as a total training that is moving from 1 through 16 over a period of years even ideally on retreat. And so each, each of these 16 lessons, in a way, they're all lessons about the workings of nature. <coughs> Using the breath a lot to understand these workings of nature, but then gradually uh, having it spread to the body, not the body in addition to the breathing, feelings, and then the mind itself. Uh, And although each step, especially when perfected, quite naturally makes the following step easier, although that's so, uh, as you see the sutra, any one of these can be taken and used. Ideally, it's it's best to go through the training and then use it in a very creative way. Because as you go on, you find in a very personal way which steps are more appropriate for you at a certain time in your practice, which steps to combine. What I'm going to suggest tonight is a shortcut for Americans, because I know you're not going to go through all 16, right? Okay. Uh, But it can amount to the same thing. Okay. The promise that the sutra makes is by using breathing, by accompanying all the different objects of meditation that will be mentioned throughout the 16, but using the breath throughout. The breath is a kind of thread that runs throughout a variety of different contemplations, but the breath is always used. That's steady. And what's suggested is by doing this, gradually the mind becomes fit to look into itself and to release itself from suffering. That's the whole point in Buddhist practice, the total elimination of suffering. It's a negative way of saying, negative not meaning destructive, uh, way of saying how to reach the optimum potential that each of us has, whether you call that enlightenment or whatever term you prefer. And it starts off rather simply and innocently. I'll read it to you. I'll read some of these to you. It may give you a feeling for it. This is the first contemplation. Breathing in a long breath, the yogi knows I'm breathing in a long breath. Breathing out a long breath, the yogi knows I'm breathing out a long breath. And similarly for a short breath. 
So to begin with, uh, you're asked to pay attention to your breathing and gradually to, to be able to tell the difference between a long and a short breath. That is, if you're breathing in long, do you know it? If you're breathing in short, do you know it? Now, why long or short? What, what's the, is that just random? Actually, it turns out that uh, nothing is wasted. All of these steps really have very precise uh, richness to them. A long breath, or what we more often call a deep breath, uh, is correlated with, as the breath becomes longer, and it becomes longer or deeper as your ability to pay attention to it improves. So that is, in this sutra, we're not attempting to control the breath directly, that is, to manipulate it with any, by means of will in any way whatsoever. All that we're trying to do is to be fully attentive, to be mindful of the in-breath and the out-breath, and to begin with, notice the length, to see if it's long or short, if it's deep or shallow. It's another way of putting it. Now, factually, what you find out, and this is part of why one aspect of the, throughout the 16 steps, some of it is training in the sense of a repetitive thing that you do over and over again until it becomes more solid, and some of it is study and learning. Because uh, in the spirit of the Buddhist teaching, inquiry and investigation has a very, very high place. And so you're encouraged to not only stick to the breath, and you won't find out if it's long or short unless you can do that, but also to begin to learn about the ways of the breath, begin to learn about the ways of the body, eventually the ways of the mind, particularly as related to the breath. So begin to begin with, if you do this uh, for any length of time, what you will see, and it's a law, everyone who does it sees it, is that if you pay attention to the breath, that is, if, if the continuity of awareness develops, fewer gaps, you know, I assume most of, it, most of us, if not all of us, are using the breath in one form or another, as you get better able to do that, the breath on its own starts to become more full. When a breath is full, it means a deep, a deep breath. What comes along with deep breath is you usually will find that it's also more fine, that it's more free, the breath flows more freely. You'll also find that probably it's more pleasant, it's much more enjoyable when the breath is flowing freely and deeply. And as this happens, you'll also find, and again this is lawful, that as the breath becomes deeper, the body starts to calm down and relax and actually become stronger. And we're leading into the third. I'm going to go through these, I have to, fairly quickly, and then we'll double back to them from another angle. The third one, I'm breathing in and I'm aware of my whole body. I'm breathing out and I'm aware of my whole body. This is how the yogi practices. We begin by looking at the length of the breath and become expert at knowing long and short, which is not all that difficult. You know, all of you have done it, no doubt, many times already, without even trying. But now we're looking at it, and we see that. We begin to notice that as the attentiveness improves, the breath becomes deeper. As the breath becomes deeper, something happens to the body. You feel more energy in the body. You'll be able to sit longer. And what you, in general, what you learn is that the breath is a primary conditioner of the body. That is, the way the breath is, 
so is the body to some degree. Now, this shouldn't be surprising because if you think about it, the most important conditioning that the, that the breath is doing in regard to the body is giving it life in the first place, right? I mean, try moving around with this body without any breath. Well, this all began, however you want to put it, when God breathed breath into this piece of clay and suddenly it became animated. Whether you're Buddhist, Christian, Jewish, Hindu, Islam, doesn't matter. So that the breath obviously has a powerful effect on the body. Okay, now that, we all know that. But then we drop it. We forget all about that and we take it for granted. Unless we have an illness or we get the breath knocked out of us. But we don't understand is that every step along the way for the rest of our life, how the breath is, is going to affect the state of the body. Now, it also affects the mind. But the beginning of the sutra is focused on the body. The first four contemplations. And this is not for you to take as a principle from me but more as something to check. Those of you who have never done this, see if it's so. And if you find it so, what you'll find is that as your ability to be with the breath develops, the breath becomes deeper, it becomes finer, it becomes more pleasant. We become more interested in it when it becomes that way. Obviously, it becomes joyful. There's more interest in it. The more interested we are in it, the more we want to do it. The more we scurry back to our little cushion to meditate. We're all finding that out, aren't we? We can't wait to get to meditate. And as that happens, if you pay attention, you'll see that the breath is a powerful conditioner of the body. The body starts to become calmer, stronger, and it's just easier to sit for longer and longer periods of time, including hours on end. If you have ever done a long sitting, probably, it'd be hard to imagine this not being so unless it's an act of sheer will and torture, is that probably your breath is very full, deep, fine, and it's really a joy to breathe. The first four uh, have to do with that, have to do with this gradual uh, increase in sensitivity to the whole body and to the breathing and seeing the impact and the power that we have over our own body by just noticing the breath. Now remember, we're not trying to to do anything to the body. All we're doing is paying attention to the breath. By paying attention to the breath, the, the breath changes. Mindfulness is a very powerful energy. It's a subtle and very, very powerful energy. When it starts to touch the breathing, the breathing starts to change, and the the change in the breathing changes the body. The analogy might be something like this. That is, uh, on a hot day, let's say if you uh, you take a glass of uh, some cool drink, as the coolness starts to uh, go down, you can feel the body start to cool off. And it's the same with the breathing. As the breathing starts to become uh, more fine, more gentle, uh, deeper, what tends to happen is it it permeates the whole body. You can feel the body being affected by the quality of the breath. Flip it around the other way. If we're exhausted, if we're inattentive, if there's a lot of anxiety, the breath is very likely to be shallow 
agitated, coarse, not too pleasant. And that has the same impact. Or is it affects the body that way, and that's why, of course, it's harder to sit. And so it's a bit like the quality of a rider affecting a horse. If the rider is nervous, it's going to affect the horse. If the rider is calm, it will affect the horse. And it goes the other way as well. Now, during these first four contemplations on the breath and the body, you're catching glimpses of other things. Not only are you seeing that the breath is a powerful conditioner of the body, you, you begin to see that the body is a conditioner of the breath as well. I mean, it's a two-way street. And you may learn other things as you go on. You catch glimpses of... the Wisdom comes as well. Okay. Uh, to put it in some, a little bit more in the, uh, the technical language of our own practice, as the first four contemplations develop, as your ability to follow the breath really develops and uh, there's a calming of the body, uh, another way of putting that is we're laying a tremendous foundation for the development of samadhi. As the body becomes much more stable, try to feel your way into this. It's almost like you have a, a platform from which more subtle stability can develop, which is the mind itself. So we move to the fifth. The fourth um, uh, is pretty much what I said, but I'll read it anyway. I'm breathing in and making my whole body calm and at peace. I'm breathing out and making my whole body calm and at peace. This is how the yogi practices. By making the whole body calm and at peace, it's not that we're intentionally trying to do that. Is that that is an outcome of increased concentration on the breathing because the breathing changes and brings the body along with it. Okay, now I'd like to read the... the, the we then move to... Uh, we leave the realm of the body we move to feelings. And here we say, I'm breathing in and feeling joyful. I'm breathing out and feeling joyful. This is how the yogi practices. And the sixth, I'm breathing in and feeling happy. I'm breathing out and feeling happy. The yogi practices like this. Okay, these two for a moment. We're still working with the breath. If you've moved along in this direction, the body has begun to calm down and become more stable. The breaths, by and large, have become uh, deeper and finer and much more enjoyable, freer. And our overall attention has improved. As the mind becomes more concentrated, using the breath now to concentrate itself, what happens is it becomes a little bit more still. But one obvious thing that uh, is apparent, and probably many of us who have been practicing for a while have tasted this, you'll come upon joy. It's sometimes called piti. It can be a kind of excitement, a kind of contentment, and of course it has a range of depth that can vary from barely noticeable at all so that some people have it but don't realize that there's a bit more happiness or joy simply because they've been following the breath to uh, real rapture that permeates the entire body. I mean, that it can be very exciting and we're uh, a kind of ecstasy. Okay, now, that is an outcome, a natural outcome of the concentrated mind. It's not that you're trying to get that. But if you just simply pay attention to the breath, and of course, this is the hard part in teaching Anapanasati 
for all of us, the hard thing to learn, if it's not conscious, I've seen it seems to be fairly unconscious, the profound outcome that can come from such a simple endeavor. After all, all the words that I've put out so far uh, all have to do with a very simple thing. It can be just paying attention to the breath coming in and out and getting better at being able to do that, period. And so many of the things that I'm going to be talking about come from our ability to carry out that simple operation effectively. The difficulty in teaching is that at some level, the mind, it takes a while for the mind to grasp the value of such a simple-minded activity. After all, just being with the in-breath and the out-breath, the instructions are very, very simple. It's on the level of Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse. And, you know, all of us get it. But what we don't understand, and, and as a result, we're not motivated enough to realize that if we can stay with that simple practice, the outcome is quite profound. Little by little, we start to understand that the reason it is profound is because the, the operation is so simple. There is a great power in simplicity. And we're looking for all kinds of laboratory-tested technologies that will get us to someplace worthwhile. But just this ordinary breath, we don't even have to pay anything for it. It's just there. You don't have to be intelligent. Maybe that's our problem. We're too intelligent. Probably. Certainly in Cambridge, that's a, we have a severe hardship all of us here. But if you can weather it, because at the beginning all of you who have practiced know, uh, it may be the instructions are simple, but they're not easy. So that the coming back to the breath time and time again is training in patience, training in surrender, training in humility. You know, all of us with our big accomplishments and our many of us with our big degrees and all, to just follow the, not be at the nostrils, if that's where you are for days on end, hours on end, weeks on end, months on end, years on end. There must be some better fate awaiting us than that. Okay. But what comes out of it in the fifth contemplation is a kind of uh, what is called piti or rapture. Uh, this is a happy feeling. It's a very stimulating one. It's exciting. Uh, and the ancients used an image of Comparing this to the next one, the next one uh, is sukha, which is uh, more soothing. Whereas the PT has excitement to it and it's very stimulating. And when you get it, at least some of it, you really like it to a point. After a while, you get tired of it. I don't know if any of you, when you go on long retreats, sometimes there'll be this rapture. If those of you who are new to the practice, you might uh, doubt that you get, get fed up with rapture, but you can you know, oh no, not another hour of rapture. <laughs> it's really true. You just can't stand it anymore. Okay, just some old-fashioned suffering as a break. Okay, we're more at home with that. Uh, the ancients likened it to someone who's in a desert and clearly very much in need of water and meeting some travelers who are all washed and fresh, their hair is wet, uh, and they're really happy, and they report that there is water. You just keep walking. And so it gladdens the heart. We just feel uh, the, the PT is like that. We get all excited. And it's a good kind of excitement because uh, we see that there's water around the bend somewhere. The next step that flows naturally out of the PT, which is sukha, is very, very different. <coughs> 
it's, uh, it's soothing, it's much quieter, and it's often overwhelmed by the piti. Now, the sukha is inside the rapture, but we don't feel it because the rapture is a much more heavy-handed kind of state. It's much more self-centered and announces itself all over the place. The next step, sukha, is much more unassuming. But that one, you don't get tired of. In fact, that has the reverse problem. You just want to stay there forever. Okay, now, sukha is coming upon the water itself. It's not just the promise of the water, but there's uh, a water to bathe and drink and refresh yourself. And it's very, very soothing. Okay. Now, all of these steps, one flows out of the one, each step flows out of the step before it. Okay, and as we move on through the, the remainder of their, uh, the remainder of the feeling, there are four, we, we covered four on the body, four contemplations on the body. There are four on feelings. The first two are the ones that I just mentioned. We come to the next one, which is I'm breathing in and I'm aware of the activities of the mind in me. I'm breathing, uh, I'm breathing out and I'm aware of the activities of the mind in me. The yogi practices like this. What that's trying to say is now we study PT and Sukha as conditioning as conditioners. Remember we were studying the breath and we saw the breath really affected the body. We now see that uh, rapture and peace also affect the mind. And you start to see that the content and quality of thoughts that you have vary. That is, if you have, if you have rapture, you can have somewhat different thoughts than if you have peace. And you begin to see that the kind of feelings that you're having condition the mind. Now, while you're doing this, you have not lost touch with the breath. At this point, the breath have receded, in a sense, into the background, whereas before we were with the breath totally. But here, what you would contemplate would be the piti itself. You would contemplate the peace itself. But you would, the breath anchors you and grounds you. And this is how it will be used, for the most part, for the remainder of the sutta. That is, no matter what we're doing, we stay in touch with the breathing. The breathing is used to to ground us, to anchor us, to give us a solid place from which to pay attention to, uh, to whatever it is that we're paying attention to. Now, as an aside, but it's not a small aside, uh, it, one offshoot of this sutta is the encouragement to use the breath all day long, not simply in sitting and in formal practice, but just whatever you're doing during your daily life to uh, bring the to unite the awareness of breathing with that activity. If you're washing the dishes, if you're uh, right now, if you're listening, you might, might want to experiment for the remainder of this talk. See if it helps you to listen more carefully. If you stay in touch with your breathing while you're listening, as you get the knack of it, it really can be very, very helpful. So that it, it's something that you bring into life and eventually becomes unified with whatever it is that you're doing, and it helps you stay. Uh, mindful. The, the use of the breath here is in the service of mindfulness, which of course is the heart of all Buddhist meditation. So, so nothing that I'm saying tonight is really new. The only thing that I'm introducing is the way in which the breath can be used in many more ways than we know, most of us know. 
Okay, so in these, in this lesson, we begin to see that the kinds of feelings that we have condition the mind. And this again is obvious. If you have very painful feelings somewhere, if, you're, if there's dukkha or suffering, that conditions the mind. If nothing else to get away from it. What do I do to get away from this? If there are happy feelings, if the feelings are very pleasant, joyful, peaceful, that conditions the mind to want more of it. It has an impact on the mind. The mind wants more of that. And so that's the lesson, the main lesson we extract from that contemplation. And then we move on to uh, kind of polish that by uh, by going even beyond the PT and uh, this piece. And you go beyond it mainly through getting even more concentrated. Or as the mind becomes even more concentrated and goes beyond, you, you leave this kind of uh, excited kind of contentment behind and you even leave this peace behind. But um, here there's a great potential for attachment. This point is a danger point for all yogis. And anyone who's tasted this knows why. Uh, you don't want to do anything else. I mean, this is more sukha, not, not, not piti. Uh, it's very soothing. It's very comforting. It's very, very happy. And uh, at that point, if you have a teacher and the teacher suggests, okay, your mind's now in a good place to do vipassana. Now, go on out and investigate and study suffering, impermanence. It doesn't want to do that. Why in the world would I want to do that? I'm happy already. I finally found people will think they're enlightened. Now, it can be very strong. Psychic things can follow from a concentrated mind, etc. So the potential for delusion is enormous. Now, one way to go through that, and often a teacher is helpful, is for the concentration to get, you concentrate on the piece itself. And that takes you to another step, another level of attentiveness. Or, and this is what's the safest, really, but I'd like to come back to it in a few moments. You use wisdom, our old friend and our best friend, wisdom, on this contentment itself. Because then that weakens the power of its conditioning. A very, very happy mind, let's say if there's a lot of peace in the mind, it has the, a powerful ability to condition the mind, mainly to want it to attach to that which is so happy. That means that, now we like that, but remember, a very unhappy mind also has the power of, of conditioning and it conditions you to, to aggress towards yourself, towards others, to repress and to do all kinds of things which are not much fun. Uh, wisdom can enable us to see uh, in a more profound way the true significance of that kind of happiness and to let it go. To use it, to drop into it, but to understand that it's not our final home. It's not a final fulfillment in any way. Uh, sometimes what is called mystical union may be this. I mean, I don't really know, but in reading some of the descriptions, uh, I think it's very easy at that point to sit down and feel that your practice is at an end. You know, that the journey is over, you're accomplished. Uh, because many nice things come. Okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have to skim and 
because I want to spend uh, time on 12, since the, the one theme in this talk, uh, these two talks, was who's breathing. And I want to give you a sense of why that was put in. I wasn't just trying to be cute. It, it's actually the most important question that we have. It's just a variation on who am I, or what is this, or why was I born? In other words, it's the, it's the fundamental spiritual question. Okay, so we, we, uh, we move now to the mind directly. We've studied the body through the breathing, the first four. We move from that to feelings. We've just, in a rather brief way, uh, finished that. And we now start, uh, we now start looking at the mind itself. Now, the mind is put later on because that's the hardest one to look at. The body is the easiest by and large. It's more, it's more of a gross object. Gross here not being uh, condemnation anyway, just descriptive. Feelings are a little bit more subtle, much more highly charged. Then when we get to the mind itself, unless there's some degree of samadhi, it really isn't much point in trying to look at the mind directly. Now, every step along the way, no matter what we've done here, even the very beginning one of seeing if we can tell a long breath from a short breath, you're learning about the mind. There's no way to avoid that. You catch a glimpse here and there. You get a, what we used to call a flash about something. Now, as helpful as these flashes and glimpses are, and they can be inspiring, they make for good conversation at parties, etc. Uh, they don't have they don't have very much uh, transformative power. They keep you going for sure, but um, if the mind doesn't come to a certain degree of calm, that is, there isn't adequate samadhi then to start to look at the mind directly, that is, the content of the mind, just what is the mind filled with in a given moment? Is it anxious? Is it greedy? Is it frightened? Is it full of love? How is the mind being colored right now? For each one of you, you can look into your mind and see what's there. Is there grasping? Is there aversion to something? Is there confusion and contradiction? Hesitation? Lack of confidence? Loneliness, in other words, all the different uh, ways in which the mind gets colored. To look at that directly, not picking up on it incidentally, but looking at it directly in a sustained way, because that's what this contemplation is, uh, presupposes that you've worked through these other eight steps and that the mind has come to a substantial degree of calm and stability. Then it makes it somewhat realistic to look at the mind directly, because the mind is much more refined and has this power to cast a spell over us. In short, we get attached to it, we get lost in it, we identify with it. Okay, the remaining, the, the ninth, uh, I'm breathing in and I'm aware of my mind, I'm breathing out and I'm aware of my mind. Uh, this is a very beautiful one when you're ready for it. All you do is you're with the in-breath and the out-breath and whatever is in the mind, you just know it. This has to do with self-knowledge directly. Again, self-knowledge has come come about here and there as we've moved through all of these contemplations. But this one is specifically designed uh, to produce self-knowledge. We begin to see the actual content of our mind from moment to moment. It's not speculative. We see how does our mind spend its day? What does it actually do? Okay. And then I, I really don't have time to go through all of these, but I'm going to mention them so you get a feeling for the, for the Buddhist sermon, this sermon. Uh, 
they're all variations on getting to know the mind. The next one is I'm, I'm breathing in and making my mind happy and at peace. I'm breathing out and making my mind happy and at peace. And there are various ways uh, to make the mind happy and peaceful. And then, but then we drop the way that got us to the happiness and the peace and we study a happy mind. Oh, let's get to know a mind full of happiness. Now, this is one of the most delightful contemplations. And people uh, love to do it because he's sort of sporting in happiness. You can get happy in any number of ways. Now, it's, it's basically talking about Dharma happiness. You know, any number of things happen during the day that make us happy, and that's fine. You can then just look at that happiness itself while breathing in and breathing out. But more to the point for this contemplation, for example, might be a reflection on your good fortune. If you've been practicing long enough, and actually feel that what I'm about to say is true. Your good fortune in having a human body and having been born and having uh, all the parts working, having access to the teachings of the Buddha with actual practices and places to practice and adequate health and adequate food and all the things we take for granted in America. But very, very few people in the entire universe, you could say, but certainly the planet, have all the conditions present which enable you to really seriously come to understand yourself. There's a teaching available. There are places to practice this teaching. By and large, our money situation is reasonable, etc. You know, just all the things. Just enumerate everything that made this center possible, or IMS, or your practice, and you'll see there's a lot of blessings involved. And there are many, many people, most, who don't come close there's one big piece or another or all of them just gone. The health is too damaged or there's no money or, you know, it's always something. Or they live in Brooklyn. I mean, there's something. They can't. There's no Dharma in Brooklyn. It's the only place on the face of the earth. Okay. Okay. So you sport in this happiness and any other ways. You know, for example, uh, one good way in which it comes about quite naturally, if you're practicing this way, and growing through each contemplation, there's a certain joy of accomplishment. You can't help it. It's natural. When the mind does something that it set itself to do, it's able to accomplish it, it quite naturally is happy. You know, you set yourself to bake a cake, you do all the work, the ingredients, and there's a nice cake, you taste it, it tastes good. There's an immediate happiness. Now, you can then, of course, build that into something, you know, and make it into, we all know, you can make it into trouble. But the immediate experience of happiness because of uh, just having uh, the fruition of what you've been doing comes about because if you've come to, a, to, uh, to, to contemplation 10, at least the way it was taught traditionally, uh, you're beginning to really enjoy practicing. It's just, you really want to meditate. There's, you know, no one has to tell you about the joy of meditation or start giving silly talks like this. Not that it's silly, but encouraging you. Because you just want to meditate. When you wake up in the morning, it has a very high priority or the highest priority. No one has to tell us to eat. It becomes easily as important. Okay. We then, now we've, we play around with another quality, the concentration. And we get the mind concentrated and then we sport in concentration. We look at the mind when it's concentrated. We get to know it. Oh, look how, what it feels like when my mind is concentrated. Then we get to know it when it's all distracted. Now, we've, we've learned about this every step along the way, in bits and pieces. We've caught glimpses of it. 
But now it's a specific contemplation, getting to know the mind when it's full of concentration, and what that's all about. Is, there's a lot to it. Getting to know what it's like when the mind is distracted. What's it like to have a mind that's all over the place? When you study it carefully, what's it like when the mind is coherent, unified? And then we move on to 12. And it says, well, 11 was, uh, I'm breathing in and concentrating my mind. I'm breathing out and concentrating my mind. The yogi practices like this. So you'd be contemplating concentration itself, that state of mind, while breathing in and breathing out. The breathing in and breathing out is helping you do that. It's an anchor. So, okay, then we move to 12. I'm breathing in and liberating my mind. I'm breathing out and liberating my mind. That's simply uh, the beginnings, sort of the the very preliminary uh, training in attachment and letting go. You begin to see the mind holding on and letting go of things. And and here it's also, it can be very, very ordinary. It can be, let's say, you're suffering about something and then suddenly you forget about it. For whatever reason, suddenly the mind becomes interested in, in something else. And in that, but here, if you're contemplating the mind, you'll see, oh, it feels good because I was something that was unpleasant and suddenly I forgot about it. Now, when I did this contemplation, I did a fair amount of it. Uh, one thing I think everyone comes to, you realize, uh, thank God for forgetfulness. In other words, supposing we didn't forget anything. In other words, every piece of suffering that we ever had, every person who stood you up, you know, who, every relationship that ended, it would never stop. I mean, it would just be that feeling, the throbbing, the ache, and all of that. So that there's a lot going on just naturally. The mind has certain uh, crude ways of taking care of itself, distracting itself, letting go of certain things and reaching up, but it always grabs onto something else. And so we begin to see the mind doing that. Okay, um, those are the first 12. And of course, some wisdom comes with it. You can't help but learn, if you do it, you can't help but learn a lot about yourself and certainly about the breath. The breath becomes much steadier. You have access to it, not only in sitting, but uh, at times it feels like it follows you around. Is You can't not follow the breath. Oh, there it is again, breathing in, breathing out. Well, it's always there. But you just become much more, you've created a vehicle of attentiveness because you've come back to it so many different times under so many different conditions and so many different situations that you now have breath. And the breath is always happening just quite naturally. Okay, we now go to the 13th and uh, this is what I'd like to finish up with. I'm going to very, I'm going to telescope the remaining, 13 through 16 are really the higher teachings in our practice. And I'm going to try to bring it all together, uh, particularly in terms of this notion of who's breathing. Thirteen, in a sense, is the most important of all. I'm breathing in and constantly contemplating the impermanent nature of all dhammas, means of all phenomena, of everything. I'm breathing out and constantly contemplating the impermanent nature of all dhammas. The yogi practices like this. Okay, now we're in pure vipassana. And what you do to begin with is you are working with the breath and 
with each in and out breath, no matter what, no matter what else is there, you look at it from the point of view that it arises and passes. You see it as appearing and disappearing. Now, this one can't be done without you putting permanent furrows in your brow and getting fed up with it after a few minutes unless you have really strong samadhi, unless the mind is calm. Now, in a given sitting sometime, if you find yourself in a place, suddenly you're, you know, how sometimes it feels like it's a gift. You sit down and suddenly everything goes smoothly and you're very, very steady and calm. You might at that point want to attempt this without any of the other training. Now, uh, my own teacher of this sutta, Ajahn Buddha Dasa in Thailand, um, has an interesting way of looking at it. He's not the only way, person who sees it this way, but it, uh, the most thorough way to do it is to go through all the steps, I mean, to extract the full value of anapanasati. Um, but there's another way to work with this sutra. It's not that you're really uh, skipping anything, because one way or another, if you can get if you can get strong samadhi, for example, some of you may already have strong samadhi from a variety of different practices, then it probably is not necessary for you to go through all this unless you uh, the breath has some unique appeal to you. What you can then do is take that would be a fairly high level of steadiness, of concentration, of calm, and then just contemplate impermanence. Okay, now, so let's take a look at what this means. Uh, first off, one good way to do it, and I got you started on that during our sitting, was to look at the breath itself to begin with. Don't, don't go to any other, just go what's closest at hand, which is the in-breath and the out-breath itself. But now, instead of just seeing it, instead of using it as a calming, just being with the in-breath and the out-breath, and maybe seeing that it's long or short, it helps us discriminate, it helps us pay attention. We become a little bit more precise and sensitive to the nature of our breathing. Uh, But now we're looking at it from the point of view of wisdom. And it really, now what's emphasized is not the breath, but a dharmic principle of impermanence, anicca. So that now what we're studying, the, it's a, it's a, it's, that's why you need a very calm and steady mind. It's in a sense what you're doing is flipping it on its back. I don't know how, what image to use, but you might say switching from content to process. Because if you look at it in, the way, in this way, impermanence permeates everything. There's just an ocean of impermanence. There's no place where impermanence isn't. So the content varies. You could look at the breath. You could look at your knee. You could look at wherever you focus your attention. The law of impermanence is constantly announcing itself. It's constantly proclaiming itself. Now, here we... So we begin with something that we've had a lot of practice with, the breathing. And we start to see this, even in this universe... You can see from breath to breath a lot of change. Coarse becomes fine, and fine becomes coarse, and so forth. Um, let me now show you a way of working. Uh, obviously, we're not going to be able to do it, but I'm just going to sketch it out for you. One way to familiarize yourself with impermanence is just to start with the breath right there, as, as I mentioned. But now, what's suggested is you go completely back to point one. What is it called? 
We're back at something one. Square one. Square one. Okay. We start with where we started. It's not that knowing the long and the short breath is kindergarten, but not at all. It's everything is in it. You can get enlightened through no, through, uh, through learning about long and short breath. But that's where we started, and that was relatively simple, and it hadn't, we didn't look at it from the point of view of developing wisdom. But now we go through, we start with long and short, and everything that I've mentioned, happy feelings, and just all of it, states of mind, the body and the breath, piti, sukha, all those words. We, and we start, and we work our way back now. We've already gone through these uh, through 12 steps. And if you've done all 12, the mind is is rather thoroughly prepared to do the work of Vipassana. It's strong. It's supple. It's very pure. There's not too too much uh, distraction. And it can really rivet itself on something. uh, The kind of mindfulness is very steady. The samadhi is reliable. And so forth. Okay. We now double back and we look at all these other subjects that we've used to get us to this point. But now we look at them from the point of view of impermanence. We see that long becomes short and short becomes long and, sh- and uh, there's nothing stable there. That everything is arising and passing away and becoming something else. Everything We see how everything is totally interdependent. How nothing stands alone. How there's just a, an endless network of cause and effects depending on what you ate for the, prior to that sitting or uh, the quality of light in the room or whether there's fresh air in the room or, it's, uh, or not, the breath will be a certain way. And you have what, your breath can be very, very deep and fine and then you have a, suddenly you have a hateful thought and it becomes, in a split second, choppy and shallow and unpleasant. And then you have a loving thought and suddenly it opens up again. And so you begin to see but now remember, before we were studying things in a sense. You know, different, we were studying long and short and the body and feelings. Now, what we're really interested in is impermanence. All of, this, all of these other events have their interest to us insofar as they are a field through which impermanence expresses itself. Is everyone clear on that? The priorities switch around. Now, by and large, the human mind is not that interested in impermanence. We're much more interested in our story. Do you know what I mean? I used to be, I am, I will be. He said, she said, and he said, and she said. And my parents, and not, you know, they did this and they didn't do that. And, you know, we, our mind is filled up with all this. Now, to then say, oh, that's all interesting. You know, I know there's love and hate and anxiety and there's ecstasy. That's all interesting, but just notice that all of it is impermanent and just look at it from the point of view of impermanence. Uh, it takes quite a lot while before the mind can get interested in this uh, universal law. Now, once you do, the yield is so incredible. I would go so far as to say that, uh, well, I don't, what I'm saying is not radical. It's just, to me, obvious. Uh, if this doesn't take root, then it's not really Vipassana. It could be something else. I mean, it could be your meditation is nice and you could be happier and calmer and less stress and so forth. And that's good. It's valuable. But if impermanence is not fully developed and, and more so something else comes out of the impermanence, which we're going to move to now, then the practice doesn't really 
uh, isn't being used uh, to the depths to which it can be used. So that we would then move through all of those steps, seeing how each one of them demonstrates that anything that arises passes away without exception. So that lesson, now it's the lesson not of long or short breath or the lesson of calming the body, it's the lesson of impermanence, uh, starts to sink sink into the heart. See, because although although our intellect knows that everything changes and that everything's impermanent, we all know that. That's not news. Our heart doesn't. We still live in ignorance as if it's not so. Okay, so that the, 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 this sutra, along with any of the other wisdom t- sutras, is a, a way in which wisdom is attempting to wean the heart away from ignorance. The heart, or the heart here means the mind, but it means more than the mind. It includes what we think of as mind and beyond. And so, uh, the examination of impermanence is the first step in beginning to re-educate the heart so that it lives in accordance with the way things are rather than in some imaginary universe to our, to our, which we've been conditioned to believe in. Okay, now, this twelfth is so, is so powerful and important because it isn't just about impermanence. If it were, that would be interesting, very interesting. But it, again, it wouldn't be, uh, the fullness of the practice would not come out. In fact, uh, there's now some speculation that at the time of the Buddha, he referred to a Greek teacher who, who, who now seems, there's a lot of evidence, was Heraclides. If any of you remember, who talked about flux, all is flux. Uh, you can't step into the same stream twice. And uh, th- because these, this, this notion of impermanence uh, was very powerful for all the ancient teachings. Everyone understood that. They were very concerned with basics. But because Heraclides left it at impermanence, first of all, I'm not clear if he applied it to himself, but let's assume he did. He didn't get to the other implications of impermanence uh, for, for Lesson 12. In Lesson 12, when you begin to see the arising and passing away in a continuous way, and that can't really happen. You can get glimpses of it, but it can't really happen until the mind becomes pretty concentrated. Often, retreats are the best way to do this. It's hard to do it otherwise until the mind naturally has that, and then you can see it all over the place. Okay. When you begin to see that everything that arises passes away, uh, you can't escape the fact that suffering is intimately linked with that. There's no way to separate the two. Now, here, it's a subtle kind of suffering that comes out of a deeper understanding of impermanence. In that moment, it's not saying that your breath is uncomfortable or that the feelings are uncomfortable. But rather, as you begin to see how everything is changing because it is dependent on something else, there's nothing that stands alone, particularly a self. And that's, of course, you know, we're getting to this question of who's breathing, namely no one. But anyway, um, what you begin to see as you immerse yourself in impermanence, that is, you have to really... uh, rub it into yourself. I mean, you have to, it has to be assimilated. It's like um, digested totally and thoroughly. And it has to be done many, 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 many times with increasing depth. And the samadhi, if there's weak samadhi, you can't, you can't learn it deeply enough for it to have an impact on the heart. The heart doesn't, isn't re-educated. Okay, but as you do, one of the things that comes out of that, 
you could call it a corollary, corollary or a natural derivative of it, is you begin to see that uh, things are, this, this dukkha exists because of impermanence, because there's nothing to depend on. That is, uh, this life as we know it, no matter where you look, is inherently undependable. Now, I'm not saying that to criticize and say it's just not, you know, it's corrupt and undependable. I'm saying it just factually. Uh, because everything is so dependent on conditions and nothing stands alone. All of us have experienced this, whether you point to a relationship or anything, health, the, the prosperity of a nation, a climate, wherever you look, it's not that it's always negative because the change sometimes, if it weren't true, it would be hopeless. We'd all be these statues of imprisoned attachment and greed, hatred, and delusion. Fortunately, it is all changing so that there's a possibility that the practice can, it's fluid. So there's some possibility of moving to something that's, that's uh, uh, to move into spiritual development of some kind. In this particular tradition, that means nirvana, nirvana, enlightenment. Okay, but one of the things that becomes clear is that how helpless we are, uh, that there's a subtle kind of suffering that's just on the threshold a lot because whether we fully acknowledge it or not, things, uh, there's a kind of passingness to everything. Okay. Now, quite related to that, again, we come to a, that, that's dukkha. Those of you who know a little bit more about the Buddhist teaching, the first was anicca, dukkha, and anatta. Those are the three main um, standards of wisdom. Those are the three main characteristics of reality. And it's around insight into those three facets or characteristics of reality that wisdom in the Buddhist sense is developed. There are all kinds of insights and wisdom that are quite useful in a worldly way or in a common sense way. Great. But this is a more specific use of the word wisdom and insight. So that the third one, no self, what that's saying, we also learn that there isn't a se- there's nothing around that's strong enough to prevent this process. There's nothing around, there's no self, a coherent, solid entity that's in control that can say, stop being impermanent or that can say, uh, stop being so independable, undependable. Stop changing. I like it the way it is now. Stay this way. Oh, now I want you to change. It doesn't or it changes in a somewhat different way. And so then we, it grows into anatta. So we, what we begin to see is that through the deep contemplation of impermanence, impermanence leads us to a sense of the uh, inherent insecurity of being a human being, of having a body, of taking birth, of the possibilities of aging and getting sick and dying. And in between all of the many things that happen, our various, as our fortune changes, we begin to see that and we begin to see that in the midst of that, there is no self who can arrest that that is strong enough to in any way really uh, alter that and change it. The illusion is that there is. There is that self. Okay, now, as that becomes stronger, as, this tw- as the 13th contemplation becomes stronger, that means we begin to see things as they really are. Now, this is a, a level of penetration that's deeper than just I flashed in on something or I caught a glimpse of something. It's a level of seeing that can't happen unless the mind has a certain degree of clarity. It's like being given an electronic microscope. Whereas before, you're still looking at the same whatever, but you don't have that perception. 
Because as the perception becomes deeper, and that's what the insights become of a more profound nature, and they are more transformative. The heart starts to get it. Now, the remaining contemplations, which I have to really kind of lump together, have to do with what comes out of, what follows quite naturally. Again, it's a a very beautiful progression if you follow this sutta. As as the thirteenth is becomes your own, as more and more you really begin to see how everything is impermanent, you go through some reactions to that. Sometimes it's fear and terror and disappointment and pity and even depression. But also, at a certain point, it can be elation and incredible feeling of release. Now, the release comes about in the following way, or it can come about in the following way. More and more, as impermanence becomes a real thing to us, not just an idea or an ideal, what begins to happen is, as we then examine attachment, and we be, uh, attachments begin to fade, they begin to fade because in seeing the arising and passing away of things, it makes no sense to get attached. It's just simply unintelligent. Now, it's unintelligent right at this moment. Look, you can attach to anything. I'm, I, I, know, I, I know we're going to die, but I just, I'm, I'm just never going to get comfortable with that idea of dying. Okay, then on top of dying, you're going to suffer that extra one. Put it positively. What if you totally accepted the fact that you will die? It might be a, a smoother journey now and also at the time of death. So that what happens is the, the deeper your understanding or insight into impermanence, suffering, and emptiness of self, the, uh, the less the hold of anything, any cravings, attachments have, they start to fade and lose their power. In the losing of their power, and we contemplate this, we contemplate letting go, and it can become at a very rapid rate. The letting go comes out of the seeing of attachment fade, seeing of how phenomena fade. The let, and as we begin to let go, we begin to feel the joy of freedom that is the ending of suffering. Now, all of us have taken... I can't say all of us, because I don't know many of you or some of you, but in any given setting, in a moment, if there's something has come up, let's say some... Um, frightening feeling or something negative and if instead of attaching to it either trying to reject it or hold on to it and identify with it you just bring uh, a very balanced attentiveness to it and sometimes it takes the energy right out of it and suddenly you don't feel that way anymore it transforms the energy the energy of unhappiness is taken out of it through awareness that's all maybe a bit of discernment and then suddenly there's a feeling of release or relief that's it you've already tasted it only now the scale is dramatically deeper, much deeper. Now, uh, what we're talking about is that finally the 16th contemplation is you just give everything back to nature. In other words, what we thought we were and what we thought we owned, which is everything, we suddenly find out it's like we've been a thief all along, but we didn't know that. It's basically an illusion, even the, th- the thieving, it's all an illusion. You know, this is my body, this is my mind, my country. Now, from the point of view of conventional language, there's nothing wrong with I and mine. From the point of view of the legal system, it's fine. So please don't misunderstand me. It has relative truth. But from the point of view of, of, of now we're moving into the highest teachings, it's not really real. 
And so the body, your body and my body, it doesn't belong. How could this body possibly belong to me? I can't control anything about it. I'm definitely not the owner of it. I'm, I'm being, much of the time, it feels like it owns me. You know, go to the bathroom right now. You know, go to sleep. You're, eat. Stop walking. Stop running. Lie down. Stand up. I mean, am I ordering the body around or controlling it? Or is the body telling? We're taking turns, probably, you know. Uh, but what you begin to see in this one, this is more, they're more all refinements on insight ripening into a fading away and a letting go and a falling away of suffering. And the 16th uh, has to do with the beginnings of total non-attachment. Probably in any generation, only a few uh, come to the point where they are literally not attached to anything. Not attached to life and not attached to death. That's the best way to live. If, if that doesn't make sense, reflect on it. Don't write it off immediately. And so that's the journey. Whereas the 16th one is putting the burden down. That is, we understand that we, uh, we own nothing, we are nothing. And in that process, we're everything. And it's, it's, the journey becomes very light. Even a bit of tasting this is a benediction. Let me just go back to the breath and finish on who's breathing. How can you, in your own practice, really examine this question? Who is breathing, after all? When you look carefully, um, what you can definitely see is that breathing is happening. There's no question about that. You know, something goes in and something goes out. No one's denying that. But... Try to find a breather. I mean, it's an interesting exercise. I've been looking for a while. Uh, I did one two-month retreat just with this sutra. Just That's all I did by myself. Uh, there were times where I thought I found the breather, but those turned out to just be thoughts or images. I have an, uh, My breath is very shallow right now. But then when I looked, I saw it was just a mental element. Some factor of mind came up and appropriated this breath. You know, All there was was to say a shallow breath. Something in the mind gets secreted. It's a thought. It's, it happens all, a lot all day long. You know, like, I and mine, I and mine, I and mine. Something grasps onto it and says, that's my breath. My breath is shallow. And then, of course, I'm disappointed because I, I know that a long and deep breath is what we all want. And then, so then that one, it keeps going like that. So that the awareness turns and through discernment, you begin to see that there's an in-breath all right and there's an out-breath all right. And the mind is um, fashioning all kinds of images and verbal conclusions about the ownership of that breath. You know, that either I am the breath, if somebody has asthma, it's very difficult to not think you are the breath. Or the breath as a possession, I'm the one who's doing the breathing. But as you look more carefully, what you find is just this impermanence. You'll find in-breaths and out-breaths coming and going. You'll find ideas about what's happening coming and going. You'll find moods about what's happening coming and going. And nowhere is there a solid entity that you can say is the doer or the controller or the owner or the breather. Of course, it's true of everything else. I could just as easily have said, who's walking, who's feeling, who's eating? They're all just ways of saying, who am I? Any questions or reactions?
please. No, you're right. See, the ideal way of doing it is you don't say, now I'll go to the fourth, now the fifth. You master one before you go to the other. You see that? Now, what is mastery? Uh, it's not like there's a certificate or, you know, we're going to send you a, a, some, uh, some credential. But let's say, just say something like long and short. You really get to know long and short thoroughly. So you have total confidence that you know when it's happening. You also get to know that when the breath is deep, how it conditions the body in, in this way, and when it's uh, shallow, how it conditions it in another way. And so you might spend a long time on just the first and the first second. And, and ideally, there's no need to move beyond that until that lesson feels pretty well learned so that your instinct is the correct one, yes. See, I, in teaching it, here we have a 20-week class on it. Okay, and so of necessity, I, I can dwell just so long on it. And we all know that it doesn't mean that everyone has necessarily mastered that step. We move on anyway. When one has mastered, say, step two and is going to step three, is that decision to go to the next step, or is, it just, is that just a natural process? Well, you see, uh, if you want to do the sutra, then you, know, you already have this information. It would be unwise to do this unless you understood the sutra. Before I undertook this as a personal retreat, I studied it with teachers and, and I studied commentaries, etc. Because otherwise, those words, you know, if, if I added a lot in back of those words. Uh, you would be doing something, but it wouldn't necessarily be following the sutra. See, if you're using this as your guide, then at a certain point, it makes sense to keep moving on because it's a, it's a, it's a, form, a, a form of systematic training. Now, but what I suggested earlier is if anything that deepens your samadhi, you could just use the breath the way you already are, all of you, you know, just here. Forget everything I said tonight. And if you can get samadhi to be deep enough, then you could try it and then just go to the 13th and investigate impermanent as deeply as you, as you would like and see what comes out of that. Uh, the traditional way is usually much more thorough and painstakingly detailed. I'm not saying that that's wrong. I actually agree with it. Uh, but it isn't absolutely essential because the real question is, uh, because all of these were, were helping to develop calmness and steadiness. Now, if you have that calmness and steadiness, however you got it, then there's no reason that you have to just go through this like you have to go through first grade, second grade, third grade. Um, just go right to impermanence. But if you go to impermanence, I don't mean from time to time, but if you go to it as a, uh, expecting it to be a dominant, sustained contemplation and you don't have much samadhi, it's probably not going to be, work out too well. Yeah. It says that it isn't. It's, uh, uh, all Buddhism really agrees with that. That is, when I said anatta, that is a saying that there is no self. You're referring to Hinduism or something like that? Yes. Does, does this form of Buddhism have any reincarnation? 
Yes, but could we ask questions about this? You know, because uh, it's not really... Okay, I'll try to keep it in the spirit of this. Your questions are good questions. I apologize. I just uh, would rather we talk about, the, about this, but your questions are good ones. It's different. Uh, it's not re- the word reincarnation, which is used in Hinduism. Okay, let me explain it in, in, so it's similar to what we've been talking about all night. If I can... Now, reincarnation, as it's often used, and I don't know if that's how you're using it, uh, implies, let's say, that there is a being, let's say, um, Anatman, that leaves one body and then inhabits another one, a succession of bodies, to learn different lessons and to evolve spiritually. Okay. Uh, the more correct term in Buddhism, it's not just this school. All of the schools of Buddhism, by and large, uh, use the term rebirth rather than reincarnation. Sometimes reincarnation is used, but the word's not important. But the process is somewhat different. Uh, what rebirth is saying, which distinguishes it from reincarnation in this sense, is that it's all process. That's what I've been trying to say all night, that there's nothing outside of the process. The in-breath is influencing the out-breath, and the body is influencing the breath and the mind. It's just all, everything is interrelated and it's an intimate network of cause and effect. If you have this, you get that. If you don't have this, you don't get that. So that when the body dies, according to this teaching, there's a mental continuum that continues. The body definitely is gone. You don't have that body anymore. But that mental continuum is not a fixed entity. It itself is a process. Or is it still, it's processing itself. And then the next time there's, let's say, it takes human form, it's not like there's an identical entity that has now taken on a new body because what has happened now is a little bit different than what was before, but it's also a little bit the same. To make it brief, uh, the image that's often used of a candle, let's say this candle has has a wick but no flame, and this candle has, uh, has a flame. This is the present life. Okay, when this life dies, it's like this candle lights this one and then this one is gone. But now this new flame, is it identical with the, the flame, with the flame that lit it? No. But then again, it's not different either. It got it from that. And so there's an endless process. At no point is there a fixation. Is there a fixed entity? So it's that kind of difference. And Anapanasati is seeing... Uh, that's seeing the emptiness of it all. Emptiness here meaning that it's empty of I and mind. There's no solid self to which all of this is happening to. Just process. Now, you used three terms at one point. Anicca, Dukkha, and which one other? Anicca. Anicca. Yeah. Impermanence. Yeah. Please. If, if this question is really awful. No, no. Um, I would like to tell you an experience I had a couple of weeks ago and hear your comments on it. I'm engaged in a piece of inquiry of the search. In a piece of inquiry? Inquiry into the nature of the bomb designers that deliver more labs. Okay. You want to know uh, about them? No, no, no. I want to tell you what happened. Okay. A young man 
the really prime developer of the nuclear pump X-ray lasers. And while I was trying to maintain a certain objectivity in this inquiry, after all, I am a research person, um, I said to him at one point, tell me, Peter, do you have any attachment? He's been doing Buddhist practice, by the way, for some time, believe it or not. Are you, are you a Adolf Hitler was a vegetarian. I believe anything. He yeah. is. Yeah. Go ahead. There's nothing fixed. Right. So I said to him, are you attached as a last MI to the notion of the continuity of all living creatures on the planet? He said, well, yes and no. That's probably a failing of yours, mine. And then <coughs> he said, you know, after all, not only civilizations have come and gone, but no doubt he's a very, you know, advanced nuclear physicist. He said, but also, of course, as you know, planets have moved and universes have come and gone. And uh, so, you know, I'm doing what I'm doing really in the hope of averting the end of this planet. I mean, all the elaborate system as to how it's going to avert the end of the planet. He said, but after all, if it happens that it doesn't work and this particular planet disappears, that's part of the impermanence. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, I don't know if I accept that. He's actually been in tremendous struggle about all this and has since left the Livermore lab and is here at MIT. And um, <laughs> he said, uh, but I could, I could see that. I mean, he was playing with that uh, point of view. And I found myself, as I listened to him, feeling tremendous pain and real, you know, unhappiness that, in a way, so casually he could talk like that. Uh, first of all, he's correct in that, uh, even according to the teaching, at some point there will be no planet Earth. Yeah. The Buddha went further than that. He predicted the end of his own teaching. Why, it's not exempt from this lawfulness. Yeah. Not the, the, the real teaching is, doesn't perish. But the particular version of it that came out of this, in this time period, let's say the last few thousand years. So it's true. This planet, of course, will end just like everything ends. But uh, that isn't... You see, I, I don't feel comfortable about judging this person. It's obvious you have no, some uneasiness. It's not a question even of judgment. I guess the real question is that when I confessed to him at the end of the interview uh, that I devote a great deal of time in my life to both meditation and to trying to avert the end of humanity. Yes. Okay. The end of the planet. His sense that he was giving me was, why do you waste your time? Okay. Right? Yes, now I understand. Again, I'm, I'm responding to your version of him. Yeah. Okay. Okay, no, fine. Yeah. Um, it could be that he has an attachment to emptiness, which is not the... That is not, you see... Um, because otherwise, if you take his reasoning, since everything is impermanent, why even just let's commit suicide and get it over with right away? Okay, so the balance is, um, 
even though we know everything is impermanent, it doesn't follow from that that uh, we become nihilistic or uh, callous or anything of the sort. In other words, okay, let's go right to the notion of non-attachment because that's where I think where the whole issue lies. Uh, many people misunderstand that. So let's say uh, this sutta that we just finished talking about has to do with the development of non-attachment. Attachment equals suffering. Okay. But what that means is fully living on the planet, we're not attached. Fully, uh, having, we, fully understanding that we don't own this body, we care for it. You see, for example, supposing we see that um, I just said, you know, I don't own this body, it doesn't belong to me, it belongs to nature. Yeah, no, that, that's a fallacy. Okay, the, 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 the question is, non-attachment has to do with the relationship to things. It, in other words, you can live the exact same life you're living, but your relationship to it changes. So that the suffering comes from the attachment. Now, some people will do away with the objects altogether. Let's say become monks and nuns. Take, let's say, sexual energy. One way to deal with that is just to become celibate. Okay, but the suffering, in a sense, is not in the sex. In sexual uh, exchange or sexual relationship, is in how we use it. Uh-huh. Same with food, money, okay. everything else. So that the teaching is a balanced one. It's not suggesting that human life has no value and that because the planet's going to end anyway, uh, you know, just let's, uh, let's go up in a, in a... Yeah. No, it's not saying that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, there's, it's, it's actually very subtle because it's, there's a lot of suffering to life. Yeah, good. Okay. And it's also extremely precious. And sometimes people get confused about that because they hear a lot that Tibetans uh, very often use contemplations of reflecting on how precious having a human birth is. It's very rare in the, in the scheme of things. That's, okay. um, so that on the one hand, there's tremendous suffering and so that uh, an ultimate kind of happiness can't come from just living our lives the way we ordinarily live them. But then what would enlightenment be? Would it be that your body goes up in a huff and puff? I mean, the Buddha still had a body. Whereas you're still in the world. The only place to get free is here, in this world. But it's just that your relationship to the world changes. At which point it becomes really a nice place. I mean, because you've changed. You know, because you're not making, you're no longer so much, uh, you're not so much mischief for yourself and everyone else. So that, now, was he also implying that by having strong defense systems, we prevent war? Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay, there, there is a teaching in the Buddha, it's in the Dhammapada, read it in the first three or four, where uh, it's only by love, uh, hate is never prevented by hate, it's only prevented by love. Yeah. So he's bad, he's a bad person. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you. What? He's really nice. He's nice, he's a nice person. I'm glad, okay. Don't tell him I said what I said. He's liable to come over here and then we'll have to go through this again. Okay. Well, the answer to that in a way would be that, well, all this life in this world is not ours, so it's not ours to destroy either. Exactly. And I, my answer, I think, of is the uh, teaching one hears from the Iroquois people, from the, uh, the pacemaker, who is a great teacher in this land. That we have a responsibility to keep open a place for people seven generations from generations from now to be able to experience the preciousness of life. 
Excellent. But life is such a great thing that we, I appreciate we don't know that. We have to just preserve it forever. Can we use that insight to come back to the breath? I mean, that is, without breath, there'd be no life. So could we have a few questions on breath or comments? It's boring, this breath. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You get tastes of it, and it's, uh, for example, people can open up to enlightenment at, um, at varying degrees of intensity. Yeah. But it is a cliffhanger. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> How about this? You see, the, um, the flowers, if you notice in the, on the altars in Buddhist monasteries and temples and meditation centers, there are often flowers. And it's exactly the, the, the symbol is just what you're talking about. The beauty is there and it's perishable. 
Okay, now, if you fasten on one side, you can get attached to the beauty part. Okay, and then you have big suffering when it starts to wither. You can attach to the withering part. And then, you know, you don't, I, let's not have flowers because I feel too bad when they die, when they, you know, I, I will never look at flowers. Let's get plastic ones. They last forever. Um, that's the spirit of non-attachment. That's what I was trying to get at. It's very subtle. Uh, one way of developing it is that can you enjoy a flower, enjoy the beauty while it's there and to let it die when it dies? Can you enjoy a delicious meal for the life of that meal? And when it's over, it's gone. It's not, you know, filing it in memory or making a portrait of the meal and, you know, bowing down to it. Enjoy it while it's there and then make room for the next fresh moment of life. So that, in that sense, you're both honoring the truth because you like Thich Nhat Hanh. He's, uh, he's excellent in terms of staying balanced, in terms of that life is horrible and it's also magnificent. They're both true. So that the flower has it. It's all there in the flower and it's all there in so many other things as well. So that the training would be uh, let me give you an example. This is, this is a, a form of training. I don't think it happens without real hard work. I've always disagreed, and I've told Joseph and Sharon this. Uh, I think it's changing, but all the, actually, well, it's not just them. All the teachers at IMS, they allow a stashing of food on retreats. Do you know what I mean? That is, you get your two meals a day, and then people will, you know, like a doggy bag, except you're the doggy, you know, and you take it and you put it on your shelf, and you can eat it later at night or the next morning. And, you know, some, some, if it's a really good meal, it's kind of immortalized. You know, just wherever you, for, a, for a whole week, all you see is this particular kind of whatever. And so one view is, oh, it's so hard. It's hard enough to be a yogi, let's say, for a, a retreat. It's so austere in a way because there's not much offered. Sitting and walking and sitting and walking. And, and so let's give a certain, have a soft underbelly to the retreat so people can do that. And, you know, I understand. And maybe the, finally that would be the best way to motivate people and to have a really uh, fruitful retreat. But another way is right from the beginning to begin to re-educate yourself so that even if it's the best meal or the worst meal or an in-between meal, is that you fully enjoy the meal, let's say, and then when it's over, it just ends. Now, that's a hard practice, but in the long run, it's quite valuable. Because, so you don't have to fall into the trap of uh, being afraid of life. Now, it's because we're not doing all of this as a form of escapism. The only way you're going to learn, really learn about impermanence, you've got to experience it inside yourself. And so the impermanence also has the positive side of change, positive change, and also it's death. And it's the same. We die to be reborn endlessly, whether it's in a moment or whether it's charted over a, an incalculable period of time. The best I can do with your two questions. Yeah. Does that get at it at all? Um, <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> okay. But irrelevant.
But you'll understand it best by direct perception of now, not by... Uh, I, I mean, is there a fair amount of thinking about that sutra? Yes. 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 Yeah. Both are valuable. The classical way of educating uh, oneself in, in Dharma is step number one is intellectual ideas. Uh, let's say in this case would be the doctrine, the Buddhist teaching. Step number two, uh, which is it becomes, it's not simply understanding the ideas. That is, you might have to ask lots of questions. Just what, what do you mean? Step number two is uh, reflection. That you take the ideas and you chew on them. You turn them inside out and upside down and you, you try to get a sense of, you compare it with your life experiences so far and whatever it takes to make those ideas more real. And step number three is meditation. Meditation is, can actually be helped if it's been, it's sort of like Adolf's tenderizer or something. You know, it's sort of, your mind has been prepared. Let's say, so there's, there is a place for thinking about impermanence. Just don't do it while you're doing formal practice very much because those are rare times where, the, where it's hard to develop this quality of direct perception. But from time to time to do things like to, to take a sutta and reflect on it can be very helpful. It's an, it's an aid to practice, but the main thing is the direct perception. That's what frees us. Or is, is to see the heart sutra in the moment. Heart Sutra came out of the Buddha's experience. And because it's such a great teaching, its only value is in bringing us back to our experience so that we can fully grasp the significance of it. I, I think it's fine is it, to, to have that as part of your practice. I do that as well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.